Well, it's hard to believe, but we are just a little over a week away from Christmas. Uh, are you ready? Everything done? Every, all your groceries bought? Presents wrapped? Plans confirmed? No, no, I hear a couple of no's. Well, you still got about, what, eight, nine days? That's okay. Uh, I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. I love what the Bible says about Christmas. I love just meditating on the fact that God became one of us. That, that God took on human flesh uh, so that he could join us in, in our plight, in our misery, in, in our alienation from him, in our exile, and then bridge the gap to bring us back to God. And, and that's often what we talk about at Christmas. And it's a wonderful story of the gospel that, that God became a baby to grow into a man so that he could carry our sins in his body and nail them to the cross and die in our place and rise from the dead, giving us promise that we too will rise from the dead. And that is the, the great message, the gospel story of Christmas. And so I just want to affirm that before we go in a totally different direction. That is what Christmas is all about, that God came to earth. Emmanuel, God with us, God as one of us, God reconciling us to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite Christmases that I can remember preaching, I mean, that's how pastors, preachers think of Christmas. Well, I preach this and I preach that and I preach that. So, so one of my great Christmas memories is a sermon series I did about the Trinity and how uh, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on human form. So it's important to think on those things. And we are blessed if we do. But ever since September, we've been in a sermon series about the rise of David. Uh, we've been looking at, at Old Testament history and we've been looking very carefully at, at who this man David was and what God's plan for him was and what God did in and through and for him in spite of him. And, and we've seen David in ways that maybe we wish we hadn't seen him in that light before. We've come to see that he was a sinner in very much need of a Savior. Now the temptation when you're in a fall and early winter sermon series on the rise of David is let's finish that so we can get to Christmas. And there's this big disjunction in our minds. Well that is about David. That's not a Christmas series that doesn't have Christmas content in it. We need to put that aside so that we can do a Christmas sermon series. And I'll just tell you, like, that went through my mind. Let's wrap this up so we can get to Christmas. But have you ever read Matthew and Luke's account of the Christmas story? Here's a challenge for you. This week, before, the week before Christmas, read uh, the nativity stories or the, the birth stories in Matthew and Luke and count the number of times that the gospel writers mention the name of David. David, city of David. Joseph, son of David. Jesus, the son of David, the king. All, all, these, all these references to David, and, and not just David's name, but then motifs of the shepherds and all other kinds of things. And so, if, if you're Matthew, if you're Luke, it seems like David is a central part of the Christmas story. But not often for us. Not often for Gentile Christians some 2,000 years later. Uh, for us, and not always, and this is not a totally uh, inclusive statement, but often, a lot of the time for most of us, the gospel starts in Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, but New Testament. And we know that the Old Testament is the Word of God. We, we know that the Gospel is there and we might sort of wrestle and squint and lean our head to the side to sort of be able to see the Gospel in the Old Covenant. And we might see types and shadows and pictures and prophecies. But one thing that we're maybe not that good at, and I say all of us together, and we're all at different levels of this, is seeing how the Bible is one salvation history it's not just about 
waiting for something. God wasn't wasting his time or ours or Israel's from Genesis 4 to Matthew 1. God was doing something, gospel in the Old Covenant, and central, you'll remember I've made this point in in the fall, central to the Old Covenant is David himself. So central to what God is doing, the very thing that we call gospel, centrally it has something to do with David. So what I want us to do for today and next week and then even on Christmas Eve, Eve, we meet on the 23rd to celebrate, we're gonna ask this question, What does the rise of David have to do with Christmas? What does the rise of David have to do with Christmas? I have a theory. I have a thesis that what the the Jews in the Old Testament understood about Jesus, what the expectation was when Jesus was born, and what we know to be true of Jesus are two parts of the gospel story. And, and what if you were a, a first century Jew and Jesus shows up and people are telling you that he's the Messiah, and you say, well, where's his kingdom? Why are we still under the Romans? This is not what I expected. I expected a king to come in the line of David to set up an earthly kingdom to overpower the Romans and any other nation on earth and to put Israel at the top of the heap of nations and to reign from Jerusalem in justice, in righteousness over the house of David, over Judah, over Israel, and all of the nations. That's what I expected. And then you have Gentile Christians 2,000 years later say, you missed it. You misunderstood. What the gospel is all about is that God became a man to carry our sin to the cross, to die in our place, to rise again. Which is it? Ironically, the very thing that first century Jews and even Jews today understand, we have forgotten about the gospel. And the very thing that we know about the gospel is the thing that first century Jews and Jews today don't realize. What would happen to our understanding of the gospel if we put the two together? What would happen if we don't throw out what we already know to be true of the gospel, but we added it to it, that idea that there is a king in the line of David who is going to come and reign in justice and righteousness over the house of David, over Judah, over Israel, and over all the nations? What if we added that to what we understand the gospel to be? Then, I think we begin to understand Christmas a little more fully. So that's my thesis, that we put the two together and we have not less but more, a greater understanding of what God is doing to save humanity through the house of David. Would you pray with me and then we'll take a look uh, at this very question. God, I pray that you would help us as we try to create new categories of thinking in our brains to understand uh, Christmas, to understand your gospel and and your saving work in the world. Lord, help me uh, to just crack the door open a little bit so that the men and women and youth and children in this church might come to see a, a, a greater panorama of your saving work in and through Israel and Judah and David through Jesus Christ, the shoot, the branch that comes forth from the stump of Jesse. Oh God, would you be gracious to us and enlarge our vision. Help me. I I feel very inadequate for this task. And I tremble at at the effort to do this. So God, please help me. Uh, Instruct my tongue and speak through me as I draw close to your scriptures and glorify yourself, magnify the son of David, our God and our King, Jesus. In his name we pray.
Amen. So our question today and next week and for Christmas Eve Eve is this. What does the rise of David have to do with Christmas? How is the rise of David an integral part of what we celebrate at Christmas? In order to understand this question, we have to work really hard to create, as I prayed about, new categories in our brains for understanding the Bible, new categories for theological thought. We don't throw away what we already know, but we have to add to what we already know. And in order to do that, would you time travel with me? In order to do what I'm trying to lead us to do, you have to transport yourself back in time. Put yourself... uh, just maybe 10, 15, 20 years before the birth of Christ. And someone says to you, in your lifetime, the Messiah will come. What are you anticipating? What is it you think is going to happen? And that's what I want to fill out today because the very thing that Israel, that Judah and the Jews were expecting That wasn't wrong. It just was incomplete. But that's the piece that we're missing. So let's go back and pick up the piece that we are missing and add it to what we already know. In order to do this, we have to go back to Genesis and understand this messianic expectation within the line of David that begins in Genesis. So, The very first thing that we have to affirm if we're going to understand what the rise of David has to do with Christmas is that we have to recognize that David, who was alive about 1,000 years before Christ, was the son of Jesse, and Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. And Judah was the son of Jacob, and Jacob was the son of Isaac, And Isaac was the son of Abraham, and to Abraham, God promised the coming of a king. Do you see how that all fits together? So go back with me to Abraham. Uh, And and I'm going to put these passages, we're going to get into a a, a lengthier passage in the book of Jeremiah, but we're going to go through these fairly quick. But I'm setting a context for understanding why is Jeremiah saying what Jeremiah is saying? It's because of the promises of God that were already written down at the time that Jeremiah prophesied. So to Abraham, God made a promise of the coming of a king. Genesis 17, 6. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It's in the plural, but what we find, if we read carefully through through this book of, of Genesis, we find that from kings comes a king. This promise of the Messiah in in its royal form comes to us as early as Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, I'm going to do something through you. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to save the world through you and your family, and I'm going to do it through your posterity, through the kings that come from your body. That's the beginning of the gospel. Just later in that chapter, God says the exact same thing to Sarah because there was some confusion. Abraham and Sarah were old. How is this going to happen? My wife and I can't conceive a child, says Abraham. So how is this going to happen? And so he didn't know. Did he have to adopt? Did he have to conceive with another woman? And he tried all of those things. And God says, no, 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 no. Finally, God says to, to Sarah in chapter 17, verse 16, listen. Abraham, I'm going to bless your wife. Yes, I will bless her. Your barren wife that's almost 100 years old. And moreover, I'm going to give you a son by her. Yes, I will bless her. She shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. So this gospel message is going to start, there's going to be a kings of people, and from kings, one king, and it's going to come from Abraham and Sarah. Fast forward, we skip over Isaac, and we get the exact same question, uh, promise given to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11. So 
Isaac and Sarah have Isaac, or Jake, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. He's this promised child. Isaac and Rebekah have Esau and Jacob. And to Jacob, God makes this very same promise. Chapter 35, verse 11. And God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. What I want us to see here is this promise of kingship is very early in salvation history. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in Genesis 3, fall, curses. Redemption begins right there in the curses. But we're only 14 chapters later. And God's saying, this is how it's going to work out. I'm going to pick a family, and from this family, I'm going to bring some kings into the world, and from these kings, I'm going to bring a king. And that king is going to turn everything upside down. Then we get to Judah. So Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons, his fourthborn, was Judah. And we've gone over this, but let me just refresh your memory. In Genesis 49, 8, the promise of these kings is given to the fourth son, not to one through three or five through 12, to the fourth son. So this promise to Abraham and Sarah and to Jacob is going to come through Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, that's what a king has. It's a, it's a symbol of his royal authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In this blessing to Judah, we are reaffirmed that there's going to be kings that come through Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, and now through Judah. And this son, this king that's going to come from Judah, will hold the scepter, and all of Jacob's sons will worship him. So he will rule over Israel. And at the end here, we're told, all of the peoples will bow down before him. So the king of the Jews, according to Genesis 49, who comes from Judah is the king of all the peoples, king of the nations. We find out a little bit more. We have to wait all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find out who this king from the tribe of Judah is. That's David. That's who we've been talking about. So we wait all this time. Finally, we get a little bit more information as God is. Remember, think, think like an old covenant Jew for a minute. God is unfolding his plan of redemption. It has something to do with a king that's going to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Finally, we get to David, and God says very clearly, you're my, you're my king. You're the son of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Take a listen at the promise that God gives to David. 2 Samuel 7, I'm just going to read verses 12 to 13 and 16. When your days, God is speaking to David, when your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, singular, after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Going down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if I was preaching on 2 Samuel 7, what I would point out to you with a lot more words than I'm about to is that this is an unconditional promise. God's going to do this no matter what. This is not conditioned on David's obedience, David's holiness, David's righteousness. It's not conditioned on the sons of David. God is going to establish the throne and the kingdom of the son of David forever. 
This is in the line of promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Now David. And in fact, we see that a Davidic dynasty did indeed reign in Jerusalem from 1000 B.C., that's when David was alive, until about 586 B.C. That doesn't sound like a forever kingdom. No, it was just a little more than 450 years. And that's how Matthew starts his gospel. So in Matthew's genealogy, he wants us to know that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises of kingship that started with Abraham in Genesis 17 and made its way to David and came down through the Davidic kings has landed on Joseph, and by adoption, these promises have been given to Jesus. That's what Matthew says. And so we see this dynasty. Jesse is the father of David the king. David's the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the, the father of Amos, or Ammon. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah who's also known as Jehoiachin or Kaniah, which is going to become important when we look at Jeremiah. And all of this at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Well, that's kind of an abrupt stop. All, all of these Davidic kings, so far so good. God, David, I'm going to give you an eternal dynasty. We see it generation after generation, and most of these kings were brutal. Both, most of them failed God's test. They're both mostly bad kings, and even the good ones had their share of sin. But then we get to Jehoiachin, or Coniah, as we're going to hear his name in Jeremiah. Same man, same king. And what Matthew says, and then there's the deportation to Babylon. Less than 450 years after David's rise to power, which we've been talking about since September, even though God promised an eternal dynasty to David, in 586 B.C., God calls Babylon. God calls King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, do you see that tree in Jerusalem? I'm talking metaphorically. The tree is the Davidic dynasty, the house of David, the Davidic kingdom. The one that God had promised would be established forever. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to Babylon, do you see that tree? Do you see the tree of David? I want you to chop it down. I've had enough of the sins of the house of David. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He marshals his army and he comes in from the north and he destroys the city. He kills most of the people. Do you know, there was just a little more than 4,000 uh, people carried off into Babylon in all of the three deportations. The rest of them were killed, brutally murdered, by the Babylonians. Only 4,000 remained. At the time of Solomon, the people of Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. At the time of Jehoiachin and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, 4,000. The city is burned down. The temple is torn down. And the Davidic monarchy is chopped down. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah 22. This is where we're going to pick up the story because this is when Jeremiah is, is living and ministering and prophesying. Uh, Jeremiah was alive when God chopped down the Davidic tree. He, he's a prophet that is there and he's watching it all. And God is giving him revelation after revelation and he's going out to warn the people that the Babylonians are coming. God has had enough of the sin of his people. He's had enough of the sin of the priests. He's had enough of the sin of the prophets. He's had enough of the sins of the sons of David. And he's going to chop down the tree. Jeremiah chapter 22. We're going to start by reading verses 24 to 27. This is God 
speaking through Jeremiah just before these things take place. But it will all take place in Jeremiah's lifetime. He'll live to see it with his own eyes. Jeremiah 22, verses 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, Coniah, it's King Jehoiachin, the Davidic king in Jerusalem. Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid. Yes, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they long to return There they shall not return. Don't get distracted by the names. Often what happens when we open to a passage like this, people who are not familiar with Coniah, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, Shealtiel, and all these other names you're going to come across, we just tune out. Like, ah, too many names that I don't know. If they were just named Bob and Bert and John, we might be able to follow. But they're not. But don't get distracted by the names. This is what's going on. There's a king, the son of David, reigning in Jerusalem. And God, through his prophet, says, I want you to go and tell that Davidic king that I'm sending him into exile. He's going to go to Babylon. I'm bringing Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to take him to Babylon. That's all you need to know. And he's not going to come back. He's going to die in Babylon. That's what you need to know from from those verses. Though he's my signet ring. Signet ring is the, the, the sign of authority of a king. So, so if, if the Davidic king is a signet ring of, of God, it's through the Davidic king that God stamps his authority on history. And God says, look, I know the promises I've made to David. I know that the Davidic king is my signet ring. He, he's my stamp of authority. Nevertheless, I'm going to take off that ring and I'm going to throw it away. Why? I've had enough of the sins of the house of David. Now, this causes a theological crisis. But God, you made unconditional promises to David. You said that you would establish his kingdom forever. You said that David would always have a son on his throne. You said that there would always be a Davidic king to reign from Jerusalem and now you're just going to throw all of that away and that's exactly what verse 28 is about even the prophet Jeremiah is asking this of God and so this is Jeremiah sort of off script talking to God is this man Coniah a despised broken pot a vessel that no one cares for why Are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? I mean, there's so much in that question. Jeremiah is weeping before God. He says, God, are you sure that you want to do this? Don't you know who this man is? This is the Davidic king. And God answers. In verse 29, Oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. Whenever you hear something three times, it's important. Usually it's related to God. Holy, holy, holy. This is an exact contrast to that. Oh, land, land, land. Defiled, defiled, defiled. The land was what God promised to Abraham and to the house of David. But now it's been defiled by their sin. Oh, land, land, land that should be holy, 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 but is not. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. So this is God speaking back to Jeremiah and Jeremiah is to tell the whole land. 
write this man down as childless. What man are we talking about? Kuniah, Jehoiachin, the Davidic king. Write him down as childless? What about your promises to David, to Judah, to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham? Write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock. You have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. God answers this theological crisis by saying, Write him down as childless. Don't worry about my unconditional promise. I got that covered. But this man's sin and the sin of his house, the sin of David and the Davidic kings must be dealt with or else we have no kingdom. And then he levels this woe against the shepherds. Who are the shepherds? We're going to find out the shepherds are both the Levitical priests, but in direct context here, the Davidic kings. Woe to you, Davidic kings. I did not promise you an eternal dynasty, a kingdom that would last forever for you to treat my flock so poorly, to scatter them abroad, to lead them into sin, to fuel my anger and my wrath against them. If you're my king, if you're my shepherd, you would be training my sheep to follow me and to know my voice. But you have not, and they have followed you into apostasy and sin. And therefore, I scatter you. And if I scatter you, I scatter them. This is awful. Especially in light of all of God's promises. So, Koniah, the Davidic king, goes into exile. And not many years later, 4,000, that's it, the remnant of Jerusalem goes with him. Now, what would be going through your mind if you were one of those 4,000 people sitting in Babylon, the Davidic king in a Babylonian dungeon? What's going through your mind? I would suggest to you that you would have some questions like this. Is there a God in heaven? Because this is not how the story is supposed to go. And if there is a God in heaven, has He rejected us? Has He broken His promises? Has He forgotten what He said He would do through David? Can we trust Him? Is this the end of my nation? Is this the end of my identity? Is this the end of my religion? Is this really the end of David? Is all hope gone? Snuffed out because of our sin and the sins of David. What would be gospel news for you if you were sitting in Babylon? What would you want to hear from God? Probably you wouldn't care so much if somebody began to wax eloquently about the Trinity 
or even the incarnation. I'm not saying those things are wrong or bad. They're good and glorious. But that's not what you're asking. That's not what you're looking for. That's not the gospel for you when you're sitting in Babylon. If you're Coniah sitting in a Babylonian dungeon, that's not gospel yet. What you want to hear is this is not the end of Judah. This is not the end of the Davidic house. If you're Coniah sitting in the dungeon, you want, a, you want an angel of God to come to you and say, though you, representing the house of David, are in this dungeon, I will get you out of this dungeon. I will put one of your sons on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem, and your son and his son and his son after him will reign in justice and righteousness, and Israel will be restored, and Israel will be the nation above every other nation. That's what you want to hear and if you're sitting in Babylon that's what you want to hear you want to hear that this is not the end of God's promises to Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David you want to hear that the Davidic kingdom will be re-established that's gospel and that's what God goes on through Jeremiah to say take a look at verses three and four after all of this takes place the Davidic king is thrown into a Babylonian dungeon and the people are taken into exile. Chapter 23, verse 3. Then, so afterward, at some time in the future, I will gather the remnant of my flock. 4,000 people at this point out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now that's gospel. You're in Babylon because of your sin and the sins of David, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to reestablish you. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to, be, you're going to multiply. And none of you will be lost. And you won't fear. And I'll give you new shepherds. They're going to look after you. So who are these shepherds that God promises? Don't jump yet to Jesus. Well, the first of these is Cyrus of the Persians. Through Cyrus... God's going to restore his people. A pagan shepherd? Yes, why? Because the Davidic shepherds failed. I'm going to bench them for a while. But through the king of the Persians, I'm going to restore you. And, and, and the king of the Persians is going to, going to give you money to rebuild Jerusalem. He's going to give you money to rebuild your temple. And he's going to send Ezra and Nehemiah to, to teach you the Torah and to rebuild your walls. And this pagan shepherd that doesn't know me or my covenants is going to do more for you than Coniah and the house of David. And after him, Alexander and the Greeks are going to look after you for a time. And after Alexander and the Greeks, Mattathias and the Hasmoneans in the time of the Maccabees. And after the Maccabees, Caesar and the Romans. We don't want those shepherds. We don't want those pagan rulers helping us or overseeing us or uh, subjugating us to their authority. We want your promises, O oh God. Give to us the king who will sit on the throne of David. And God says, I will, but just not yet. They failed. The house of David failed. I'm going to send you different shepherds. They're going to do a better job than the house of David did. Though they're pagans that don't know me. Finally, we get to verse 5. But behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Same imagery that we saw in our Advent reading from Isaiah 11. Remember in Isaiah 11, the Davidic tree was chopped down so it was a stump. Stump of Jesse, the father of David. And from the stump will come a branch. Same promise. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. That's gospel. Remember, this is written before anyone was carried off into Babylon. But when you're sitting in Babylon and the Davidic king is in a Babylonian dungeon, that's your hope. Shepherds for a time, but finally a Davidic king who will reign over Judah, Israel, and the nations in justice and in righteousness doing for Israel and the nations what David and his sons were never able to do. We see that promise again. Just listen as I read. Really, just listen. Let this wash over you in Jeremiah 33. This is just two chapters after uh, Jeremiah promises the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I might reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. God is saying, look, as sure as Day follows night, cycle after cycle. So also, my promises to David will come to pass, but in my own time and in my own way. As for now, the house of David is chopped down. From this Old Testament perspective then, and you'll notice what Jeremiah did there, at the end of chapter 33. He traced this Davidic promise of a king over Israel. He traced it back, and where did he go? From David, to Judah, to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham. And God's saying, look, I've made promises to those men, and I will keep them. There will be a king in Judah over Israel and the nations. So from this Old Testament perspective, what is Christmas? Christmas is the beginning of the reestablishment of Israel and Judah under the monarchical rule of the house of David. But that's not what happened, is it? That's not the kind of kingdom Jesus came to set up, is it? Jesus came to save us from our sins. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans, did he? By 70 AD, this is just 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, 
Jerusalem was again destroyed, and the temple was again burned to the ground. And all hope of Israel as a nation under Davidic rule evaporated again. But their Messiah had already come. And he didn't do the things that if you just listened to today's sermon and forgot about everything else you know about the gospel, what's God doing? And then a hundred years went by and a hundred years turned into 500 years and 500 years turned into a thousand years and a thousand years turned into 2,000 years. And the Jews are still scattered all over the world. No Davidic king. We're now more than 2,500 years since Jeremiah prophesied that God would put a Davidic king on the throne of David. We are 3,000 years from the promise that God gave to David. We are 4,000 years from the promise that God made to Abraham. So what we're inclined to do is say, well, they didn't understand the promise. There's no king that's coming. There's no kingdom that we're going to live in. That was all about something else. That was all about being forgiven for your sins and, and dying and going up into heaven. You got it wrong for 2,000 years and the prophetic expectation was wrong. And if you were sitting in Babylon and, and you heard the words of Jeremiah and the prophets, you were wrong. You missed it. And because you didn't understand your scriptures, you, mi you missed him. And when he came, you rejected him and you, you nailed him to a cross. You've missed the gospel. You've forgotten your king. You've rejected him. There is no kingdom. There is no king, at least not that kind of king and not that kind of kingdom. Right? Wrong. Wrong. That's the piece we're missing. Gentile Christians, we're missing it. There is a king in the line of David who is coming to earth and he is going to overthrow the Romans and the Russians and the Chinese and the Americans and the Canadians and the Iranians. He's going to overthrow them all and he's going to set up a kingdom on earth. Now whether you believe that's for a thousand years before the judgment or if you believe that that's after the judgment forever, it doesn't matter. There's going to be a brick and mortar kingdom with a real king on a real throne from the line of David on this earth. That's what Christmas is all about. The birth of that king. Now here's the problem. The Davidic king comes to reign in justice and righteousness. I don't know if you caught it in our Advent reading, but he will ru rule with a rod of iron and he will smash and destroy and kill all opposition. That is, the Davidic king will not put up with sin and injustice. So the Jewish expectation was not and is not wrong. However, if the Davidic comes to do what God has promised the Davidic king will do, we all die. And the king has no subjects in his kingdom. There's the peace that we get. Plug it in to the peace that we've forgotten. The first coming of this Davidic king was to lay down his life to purchase for himself subjects for his kingdom. That doesn't mean he's not coming to overthrow the Romans. It just means not yet. So what has God been doing for 2,000 years? He's been gathering subjects from all the nations of the earth to be subjects in his kingdom and he's dealing, he's dealt with and dealing with their sin problem so that when the messianic king, the son of David comes to rule in justice and righteousness with a rod of iron, he will look at us and say, come into my kingdom, I've already punished your sin. Oh king, when did you do that? In my own body? On the tree? 
But for those who reject that, there's no place for them in his kingdom. I marvel that there are Christians who say that the, the regathering of Israel to the promised land beginning in 1948, continuing to this present day, has nothing to do with God's salvation history. That's just ludicrous to me. I don't know exactly how it fits. But in 586 B.C., Israel was whittled down to 4,000. Those people should have been wiped out. Either by death or by assimilation. But now, ever since 1948, God has given them back the land and he's calling them. And I can't help but wonder, is not the king from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah over the house of Israel, not going to come back to the land that God had promised and reign from Jerusalem just as the prophets promised? So what does that have to do with us? Everything, because we have been grafted in, adopted into the commonwealth of Israel. So that when the Davidic king sets up the kingdom of Judah over the house of all Israel, over all of the nations, he also calls men, women, and children from all of the nations into his kingdom that he is ruling from in justice and righteousness from Jerusalem. Oh, that's that's. That's gospel. Let us not have a small view of what God is doing. He was not wasting His time for thousands of years before the birth of Christ. So where does this leave our question? What does the rise of David have to do with Christmas? Christmas is when we celebrate the birth of the son of David who will bring all this to pass. And so at Christmas, we look backward to his birth and we also look backward to the cross. And we say, he came to die on the cross to purchase us for his kingdom, but we also look forward and we stand in the prophetic tradition and say, we're still waiting for the king. And just as God sent uh, the Persian and the Greeks and the Hasmoneans and the Romans to shepherd his people, so he has sent empire after empire to shepherd us. We live in the Davidic kingdom. Christ reigns from heaven. <laughs> That's not the end of the gospel, it's coming. This Christmas, anticipate the return of the king. The difference between us and Jews is that we know who the king is. We know what he's done to purchase us, and we are ready for him to come back. Let's pray. Oh God, give us a big view of the gospel and this Christmas I pray for us help us to celebrate the fullness of what you did bringing King Jesus into the world I pray these things in his name Amen